This is the We Are Outdoorsmen podcast, built by outdoorsmen for outdoorsmen, presented by Herod Outdoors and Max Luer. Top line. Top line just got this. Yes, there it is. <laughs> <laughs> that was my fault. There we go. Oh, she does it again. Welcome back to another episode of the We Are Outdoorsman podcast presented by Herod Outdoors and Max Lore. I'm Britton. Bobby and Richie are here. And today we are going to talk. Uh, he's got to get it in every time. We are going to talk salmon and steelhead uh, over on the west side with Dwayne England, who runs and operates Fish Hunt Northwest, uh, talk show, content show. Uh, we've done a lot of stuff with them and so excited to have uh, Dwayne on because he's got a lot of valuable insights and we'll get into the political aspect of things and talk about ways that uh, the sport fishing industry, anglers in general, can, can help make their voice be heard when it comes to uh, some of these issues in the state. Yep, it was a good conversation. I think you guys will really enjoy it. One of the things we didn't talk about is just kind of the, well, at the end, I asked him, you know, how do people get involved? And he talked about a few things. But, of course, one of the best ways to get involved is to join CCA, right, Bobby? Absolutely. Yeah, Coastal Conservation Association here in Washington and Oregon, they're a fantastic group. They're one of the newest groups to really get involved in our fisheries up here. We brought them up here uh, 12 years ago, Mm -hmm. and, you know, they've got more done in 12 years than all the other groups combined. And it's not to say that nobody nobody is doing anything. We figured out that you have to do things a little bit differently, and you have to become very political in order to achieve anything today. And uh, CCA has done a, a fantastic job of that. If you want to know more about CCA, uh, go back a couple episodes here on the We Outdoorsman podcast, and I had a great conversation with Nello, uh, who is the director director of the Washington State CCA, yeah. I guess call it chapter, and uh, that's a great conversation. I think you guys will all enjoy that, and it's very thorough, so that'd tell you all about CCA and why you should get involved. Sure, sure. So, you know, this, yeah, this, get involved at a local level as well. Oh, absolutely. The three of us have been involved in the North Central Washington chapter, and wherever you are in the state, there's something, you know, there's a chapter likely close to you that you can get involved with and attend meetings, and it starts at a... It's a there's grassroots obviously the state level organization, program. But it's broken out to... There's different issues in different areas, and, you know, we work in, you know, helping fundraise by doing our Wenatchee Salmon Derby, and, um, you know, the more people that can get involved and help share the the dedication to you know being an advocate for the resources and the salmon and steelhead and uh in this industry the better yeah absolutely now go go back and listen to that episode i think you guys will i'll hear some good things that resonate with you and uh, i'll bet you'll join because it's a worthwhile organization so some of the stuff that that duane as you guys well know it's not a good idea to get me going on the on the uh whole (laughs) state issue and what we have going with our fisheries you know and as i've told you before summer on steelhead fishing is the epitome of fishing to me ultra light gear long rods like uh, and you're catching fish eight to 20 pounds and in in low clear water and and it's a total finesse fishery you have you have to play the game or or you have to do what you've got in your backyard and you look at what we have going up here in, in north central washington we haven't steelhead fished up here for uh, nine ten years something or, like that a little longer i think yeah yeah so you're, you're looking at a at a problem that exists 
that is statewide, total statewide, as well as Oregon. Mm-hmm. And we've got uh, a number of these, uh, what do you want to call them, uh, groups, Native Fish Society, BS. That there is no native fish left in this state, okay? Let's just, let's just be clear yeah. on, on that whole thing. There is no native, true native fish. Right. Most of these fish are hatchery origin fish. So don't tell me that we're going to cut our plants back by 60% because we don't want the encounters with the hatchery fish and the, quote, native fish in the system. This whole thing started in back in the late 70s when they went to fin clipping fish to designate a hatchery fish or a, quote, native fish and because of that whole issue we are sitting in a in a in a situation right now where we have way more people fishing on way less planted fish Mm -hmm. you know common sense put more fish in the system quit managing people and manage the resource properly right it doesn't matter whether you're looking at the at the predation issues with the cormorants, terns, yeah. uh, sea lions, all of that stuff. All of it plays a part. Yeah. But just fix one one issue, plant yeah. more fish, right. and it eliminates a whole bunch of these other issues yeah. that we've got. And the state doesn't have money to do this or do that because they're all running around putting Band-Aids on peripheral issues that don't even pertain to yeah. the actual problem. Yeah, Dwayne, he's... He makes a distinction, you know, we don't really call them native fish anymore. We call them wild fish, which, I don't know, mm-hmm. all semantics. But the, yeah. issue, the issue is is that, so, yeah, they started fin clipping, but it wasn't 100% fin clip. No, no. And that lasted a very long time. And so. They still do it today. And still today, not 100% fin clip. So, so Plus, a, they're, they're a planting fin, way less fish. A fish that has a fin is not necessarily a native fish and no. that's the issue they're all mixed up now in terms of genetics and which is why they should be planting more so they might as well plant fish. more and, and that's one of the things Dwayne and I talk about and the other thing is that the issue that he talks about especially with the Grays Harbor region all the rivers that are associated with um, what is that the Chehalis that goes through there yeah that there's hatchery fish in there but we're not fishing for the hatchery fish because of concerns about impacts to the wild fish and so there, therein lies the problem. You have fish in there that we could catch and keep, but yeah. then it becomes an impact thing. And we talk about that. So you guys, you guys will be able to hear the ins and outs of what impact really means and all this. So I won't get into it here because well, it's we, really nice we, because we talked about it. Yeah, Dwayne, Dwayne is a little more uh, PC than I am. Well, the nice thing about Dwayne is that he keeps up on a lot of this stuff, yes. and that's he's really good at it. And and getting involved like we talked about. And so he's real knowledgeable. So I think you guys will really enjoy that conversation. Yeah, I'm excited to uh, hear what Dwayne and you guys' conversation was like. And uh, it is somewhat of a lengthy interview, so we're going to jump into that pretty quickly. So I hope you enjoy that conversation. And when they wrap up, we'll uh, come back and touch on a little bit more.
Today I'm visiting with Dwayne England, the host of Fish Hunt Northwest, and of course he's done a bunch of other things. He's a recently retired firefighter, and he's been on radio. How are you doing today, Dwayne? Hey, Richie, I'm doing good, buddy. Uh, thanks for inviting me on the uh, inviting me on the podcast. Well, I appreciate you taking some time to visit with us, and we're going to talk a little bit about steelhead fishing, in particular on the coast of Washington State. But before we do that. Uh, it might be interesting for our listeners to know a little bit about your TV show. I recently moved to Root Sports Northwest, uh, having been a, a kind of a social media online show. So tell, tell us about your show. Yeah, thanks, Richie. Um, started Fishing Up Northwest back in 2019. So we're actually starting our sixth season now. Um, and things are going good. You know, we do still, in fact, stream the show live Thursday evening. 6 p.m. and we multi-stream to our Facebook page and our YouTube channel. Uh, it's a one-hour program and then that show goes up on Root Sports about a week later or so, 10 days later or so, that, that show will actually air on Root Sports on Sunday morning at uh, 9 a.m. And what, uh, tell folks about your content. Yeah, so the show is a little different than most outdoor programming in that we have a quite a mixture of different topics and in, in how we present. So really when you tune in, you're going to see a studio kind of a talk show format. I sit behind a desk, kind of like the old Johnny Carson days. <laughs> um, my co-host Tommy sits to my right. I guess he would be my Ed McMahon. Um, but you know, we invite in studio guests. Um, and of course with the ad advent of uh, zoom, we now are able to reach out, to folks all over the place, even across the nation. And we, we do a Zoom, insightful Zoom interviews. We talk a lot about some of the topics, some of the behind the scenes things going on that I kind of pay attention to. Um, and I put in perspective that either keeps us off the water or out of the woods. Folks want to know what's going on. Why now can't we go here? Why is this fishery closed? And so Tommy and I navigate our way through the year paying attention to, well, you know, legislative session is now starting here in Washington. WDFW will be asking for monies for budget. And there's a lot of things going on there. We try to bullet point some of the hot topics and what we can or can't look forward to. Then we'll roll into North of Falcon. They'll start discussing all the different uh, opportunities we may or may not have as it comes together for 2024 and salmon season to include all saltwater, all freshwater fisheries. But it's not just all the political stuff that we visit. You know, we have a host of uh, uh, outfitters and guides on. We talk about their fisheries. We talk about specifics and how they're so successful and try to give our viewers tips and technique points so they can go out and be successful. We do an in-studio in our bait lab, as we've coined it. We do a, and show a lot of how-to stuff, finite rigging, for all specific fisheries. Tommy and I cover all freshwater fisheries. We cover Puget Sound. We cover all the ocean fisheries. So we really move it around uh, with those technique talking points and some of our guests that we bring on. But, you know, we're out of the studio too. We are on the water or in the woods and we are filming our content versus loading up YouTube with just a bunch of videos and, and stuff of us out doing things. We like to release that content within our show as segments within the one hour program. So somebody might tune in and have us uh, interviewing a guest either in studio or via Zoom. 
And then you might watch a couple segments of us out on the water, fishing Puget Sound for blackmouth, perhaps trolling for kokanee over at Roosevelt, uh, maybe down in Oregon fishing the Siletz River with buddies for steelhead, or on the ocean for tuna. So we move it around a whole lot, and we try to bring that content from the outdoors to the indoors to include hunting. You know, we did a great turkey hunt last year that we got on mm. on the show. Yep. Uh, recently, we had some waterfowl hunts on. And uh, going into 24, we got some great hunt opportunities that we're going to take advantage of, try to film and try to get them on the show. Yeah, you really do have a great mixture, I think, of be in the field or on the water. And then, you know, the things that really matter to those activities that we're all doing together. And so I really appreciate that. And that, that's part of the main reason we're on today. I think uh, here in the Pacific Northwest, especially here in Washington, you know, steelhead fishing in particular has been something that people have done for years and years and of course in the last couple decades it's been tougher and tougher and so folks over here we rarely get a chance to to fish the rivers like we used to and so we might travel over to your side to fish and so the things that are going on with the Department of Fish and Wildlife and legislatively are, are real important to keep tabs on as sportsmen and so that's kind of what we're after. This year what opportunities do exist for steelhead fishing over in western Washington? It, uh, it, it seems to be some doom and gloom, but it's not all doom and gloom. I mean, <laughs> I'm disappointed in that the rivers in my backyard, once again, the Grays Harbor region are closed for steelhead fishing once again. That is now three years in a row, and we can get into that a little bit. But you asked what is available, and, you know, I, I kind of look at it from a from an overall perspective and recognize we, we now have four recognized areas or regions that are, that are open for steelhead fishing right now. So Northern Puget Sound has some opportunities up out of this Homish system. Uh, the North Coast referred to as Olympic Peninsula. Uh, we have the Willapa Basin area and then we have Southwest Washington. And you know, the rules of engagement in some of those are quite a bit different in that and some were subjected to no bait, no scent, single point, barbless hook, single presentation. And then in Southwest Washington, we have areas where we can still fish bait, still fish um, with scent in, utilize multiple presentations. If somebody wanted to fish a dual bead setup, for example, you can do that in Southwest Washington. No, oh, that's good. Um, I think that is important for people to know that there are some opportunities <laughs> And we should take advantage of those, and that's a good thing. Talk a little bit more about this, the issues about using bait or not using bait and barbless versus barbed hooks, and, and why do they do those different kinds of restrictions for different bodies of water? What, what's the main reason? One thing we have amongst recreational anglers that's always been to our demise is we have separation of groups. And we have some recognized groups that really push hard for a no bait restriction. Most, uh, most of them may use longer rods with a artificial uh, tied fly or something at the end of it. But mm -hmm. we, have our, we have our passions. And when it comes to predominantly hatchery targeted areas, especially early in the season, when we know for certain the, uh, the impact on wild fish is less than 3%, even in some of the in some of the models DFW ran going into this season, their information presenting to the co-managers, they, 
for our projected a impact of less than 1%. When you start wrapping your head around that, it's like, well, why wouldn't you allow bait, for example, for those that want to still use bait? I mean, let's face it. You can catch a lot of steelhead on all artificial without any bait or any scent. And I'm a, I'm a bait thug from way back. Right. If I have a fisher, I can use bait. There's going to be bait in my boat. But for these areas that are restricted and we don't need bait, you know what? We still seem to catch plenty of fish. So on the side of conservation, if it's a no bait, no scent restriction, I'm okay with that. But I think some far, sometimes it goes a little too far, especially when we know we're targeting primarily uh, hatchery fish. And it would, would help some anglers find more success if they had the opportunity to use bait in some fisheries. But it just depends on the particular basin or drainage the tributaries, the timing of the run, are they early hatchery returning fish starting mid-November into December when there's very few wild fish in the river? Is it a river, for example, like the Solduck that has a really strong wild return starting right in January? Based on science and what they know on particular fisheries, I think there are some they could utilize a little more leniency and allowing bait and then have a bait closure at some point within the fishery if it continues as it goes into the wild fish but some of that gets a little difficult to manage some of it's a little difficult for enforcement to even keep track of so sure as we know a lot of the regulations are written to try and keep them as uh, understandable as possible even though you and i both know more times than not you should probably have your attorney with you on the shoreline yeah well there's no doubt about that i i feel that way every time i open up the regulation book it's uh my brother made a comment. He's from Oregon. Not that theirs is a whole lot better, but he was like, holy cow, it's really confusing. We were looking at the hunting mm-hmm. regulations, for example, and, and I feel that way that it it isn't that user-friendly, and there seems to be a lot of finite management when I don't think that we really have finite knowledge about what it is we're managing, <laughs> right? Yeah, true. Uh-huh. <laughs> Yeah. So it's kind of interesting. It's easy, easier, I think, to manage the hunters and fishermen than it is the rest of it. But um, you, you had made mention when we were uh, talking before that you felt like there has been some change about how the department is taking input relative to steelhead seasons, um, more town halls, more, more listening sessions. Talk about that a little bit and how that's changed. Primarily for this Grays Harbor region, we have uh, we've been closed now for steelhead opportunity for three years it goes even a little deeper than that so you got to understand when they come out of north of falcon with agreed to fisheries with the co-managers when i say co-managers we're talking about the tribes the 13 recognized treaty tribes in the state of washington with fishing rights based on the bold decision 1972 they go into north of falcon and they they navigate through all the opportunities and the preseason forecasts, and we have these fisheries that they come to agreement on, and when they open, when they close, retention limits, where you can keep wild fish, where you can keep hatchery fish, and all that is agreed to long before we start fishing. Well, Grays Harbor, once again, the entire region, tributaries to be included, we had an agreed-to fishery on Coho through the end of December, and this has gone on for three years now, but we get into November and they cannot come to agreement on steelhead management. It really kind of stings a little because the Grays Harbor region is synonymous with large wild coho yep. and big hatchery returns in the month of December. And the DFW is putting an effort to plant these hatchery fish that return on some of these rivers in December pretty strongly. 
and we are not now able to go after them due to inability to come to agreement on steelhead. And people ask, well, why don't they just curtail the rules to allow you to go after coho, and then if you by chance catch a steelhead, we're all good. Well, because the rules are put in place for the season thus far, they have been anyway, and they come to that agreement on coho through December. And in most cases, you can still use bait. You can wrap your plugs with, you know, bait and scent and utilize other techniques to go after those coho. And uh, thereby you can't manage a steelhead fishery when you have rules of engagement for coho and no rules of engagement for steelhead. If this region was to open back up for steelhead, I guarantee it would be single point barbless hook, no bait, no scent. Some areas we may or may not be able to fish out of our boat. I don't know if going into North of Falcon this year, if they shouldn't take a look at what they've done the last three years and really set the season up out of North of Falcon for the month of December, facing coho with single point barbless hook, you know, no bait, no scent right. restriction that way. We could at least get a December fishery. If you encounter an early steelhead, no harm, no foul. We can, we can fish for both species utilizing same rules of engagement and they, they could decipher, you know, what your bag limits are going to be, but that's kind of the starting point. And then you asked about, well, communications and town halls and those types of things. So three years ago, DFW started to engage with the public and what they deemed as steelhead town halls. And getting through COVID and all that, they've become pretty accustomed to utilizing Zoom for a lot of folks to sign in, chime in. You get a lot of folks on there, recreational anglers, guides, a handful of folks, professional guides that are also part of the Washington State Guide Association, DFW staff. They start off basically with a preseason forecast, and they kind of lay it out there based on basins, rivers, tributaries, what the goal of escapement needs are. Now, when they're setting all this, Richie, it's all about the wild fish, right? right. They don't really care about the numbers of hatchery fish. It's how many wild fish do we need to get to the gravel in, in certain river basins and all throughout the tributaries. And they start on those numbers and they look at whether or not we're going to be <clears throat> above escapement needs and can, can have a conducted fishery, or if we're going to come in below escapement needs, and then they really have to be careful in allowing folks to get after it on the water, knowing that encounters to a certain degree result in mortality rates. I honestly feel the last three years, DFW has gotten better in their ability to bring science-backed information to the town halls. They present the information the bios have gathered in the field, and they put it out there for the recreational anglers to understand. And they start breaking it down and talk about different opportunities and directed fisheries. The first two years going into this, I always felt like, gosh, this not just not really breaking it down to the point where they come up with a method or a means for us to target those hatchery fish in those tributaries that would have zero, we should say little to no impact, for instance, on the Chehalis Basin wild steelhead stocks. Because we're talking about the upper Chehalis watershed and some of the smaller creeks and streams, tributaries into that basin, where we want those wild steelhead to go, where there are no hatchery steelhead being planted. Right. So those are off table. It's like, we don't want to go fish those. But what we do want to fish, for example, is like your Satsup, your Wainucci, the Hump Tulips, the Skookum Chuck. Those rivers all have robust hatchery programs. In the last few years, they've had pretty decent returns on the hatchery fish. 
and the hatcheries are forced to surplus all these fish because the recreational community hasn't had opportunity to go after them. Now, DFW this year presented the co-managers, and again, co-managers are tribes, and in this region, it's the Quinaults, and they met with them multiple, multiple times, and they laid out a plan that I felt like was the mo most comprehensive, most conservative effort to go after hatchery fish and protect or stay off of a majority of the wild fish, especially in those four rivers I just mentioned. They were trying to allow us to have opportunity and fish those rivers into March. Now, a majority of those hatchery fish are probably done around 1st of February, mid-February. Mm. So your, your encounter rate on wild fish goes up, but they had a plan for that. They, the year prior, went to legislator for funding because the co-managers had stated, we are not gonna come to agreement on any plan that you put before us to target hatchery fish. If you don't have a way of monitoring or counting your impacts to wild fish. In other words, they wanted creel samplers at the takeouts. They want creel survey on the rivers, engaging with fishers, fishermen, and ladies to know exactly what our impact to the wild fish are. So DFW said, okay. And the legislator said, okay. And they gave them the funding to hire the personnel to have creel sampling on those rivers at the takeouts, at the boat ramps, to engage with them daily and start gathering data. And their intent there was, and they even broke it down by month. They had a ceiling, a, high, uh, a number threshold that they were not willing to go past on encounter rate. So for example, December, let's say we're open to fishing steelhead on the Wainuchi River, uh, even, even fishing from our boats, let's say we're full on. And so if the number was 24 wild fish, I'm trying to remember what the, the stats were, but let's just say for all intents and purposes, the month of December on the Wainuchi, the impact cannot exceed 24 wild fish. So we have quite a bit of boat activity historically on the Wainuchi. You know, on weekends, 50, 60 drift boats a day. I yeah. mean, it gets pretty crazy. But the number of wild fish coming in can be relatively low. Now, if we hit 24 fish and it's December 27th, they would have closed the river for three days uh, for kind of a reset, then open it back up for February. Because February now you have a new set of engagement uh, numbers or numbers of engagement, I should say, that we don't want to exceed. And so we fish through February. Maybe we don't hit that number and we get the whole month, or I should say January. We get into February, high probability of more wild fish coming in, and maybe we get a week into February and we hit that ceiling because there's a big push of wild fish, and they close it down. But I guess my point is their intentions were to monitor it by river or tributary monthly with encounter rates to not exceed a certain number. And if we hit that number, they'd close it down and open it back up. So looking back and looking back, previously to management ideas and models that they ran. I'd never seen a more kind of an approach that really micromanaged the fishery, so to speak. Oh yeah. Because they really wanted to give us opportunity on the, on the hatchery fish and really tried to stay within those, those protective numbers on the wild fish. I was all on board. I was supporting it. We talked about it on the show try to encourage people to understand what DFW is truly trying to do this year. They presented those plans to co-managers multiple times. And I've had conversation with folks. I believe some of those conversations with the co-managers went from fish those four rivers from this date to this date. Here's our plan going monthly. Here's the checks and balances. Here's how we'll track and monitor 
the impacts and fishing out of the boat. And then it was, okay, when we do all those fisheries, all those things we talked about and bank fishing only, floating devices for travel. And then it was perhaps dropping a couple of those rivers out of the equation and limiting us to only a couple rivers. In other words, they were going back to the table time and time again, trying to find a way to get us on the water, maybe three or four days a week, and then it's closed for three or four days. So I don't know what the exact particulars were to the negotiations or the agreements they were putting before the co-managers, but it didn't matter. At the end of the day, the Quinault said no to everything. Their stance on that is we're not fishing. We don't want you fishing. Well, they're fishing with bull nets. Right. Different. <laughs> Co-managers have never really conducted fisheries where they will hit a threshold and stop fishing. They, they, they fish historically based on set dates, five days a week, four days a week. doesn't matter how many you catch or encounters or whatever. Uh, and, you know, that's their management style. That's what they do. And um, it's a shared resource. And so DFW, I learned this a long time ago, DFW cannot tell them how to fish. They like to tell us that the tribes can't tell us how to fish, but when they keep closing our rivers, it kind of seems like they do. Yeah. I want to back up uh, real quick for the listeners that they're probably thinking like I am. uh, So you talked about encounters. That's, uh, I'm assuming you you hook a a non-fin clipped steelhead quote unquote native steelhead and release it, that's considered an impact. You talk about encounters correct. or impacts, correct? And so Yeah. Yeah. Let's so talk about that a little bit. Wild very seldom can we say native anymore, but we can say wild fish, impact out of post fin. Uh yeah, impact to wild fish is just simply that, catch and release. Now, statistically in all the models that they run, they stick with a ten percent mortality rate. Okay. Which is extremely high. Okay. So if we have a ceiling or a, uh, a, a number that they've subjected the fishery to, we can't exceed 25 fish, wild fish, for the month of December. If we catch 250, the impact is going to be 10% or mortality of 25. Okay. So there's the number you catch and there's the number of mortality. Gotcha. So let's bring that down a little tighter. Maybe, maybe our threshold is you know, an impact of uh, 10. So we could catch 100 wild steelhead. Right. And they're going to assume that our impact or our mortality rate is is 10 fish. And they would do that by monthly, you know, or each month. So Sure, sure. That makes sense. Yeah, I, I just want to make sure that, that folks kind of got that picture that there's hatchery fish in the river, but if we end up hooking a native fish and releasing it, the, there is potentially an impact, whether you we know the exact amount or, or not they make an assumption about it being a certain amount say 10 percent, and then that's how we go forward with some management strategy correct yeah and these these plans that dfw presented to co-managers th- this year they they actually had statistics in there to support their thought process and their models that the impact was only going to be one to three percent uh, on wild fish so they have come down in some regards on some of those fisheries in how they modeled it to lessen the impact of the mortality rate, which is good news because we've always been advocating that the 10% mortality rate is too high. And we use comparisons like when we go down and fish and film and assist um, buddies on the Sluts River, the guides down there that are very involved, well involved with the broodstock program, we're talking about wild fish that are caught, put into a holding tank on a drift boat, transported to a holding tank at a takeout, dumped into that tank and held 
then ODF and W staff come with a truck. They get the fish out of the holding cage. Yep. They put them in a truck, take them to the hatchery. They spawn those fish, put them back in a truck, take them back to the river and release them. And they have a lot of data to support the fact that their mortality rate is less than 2%. Yeah. Okay. And then comparatively, Richie, we're talking about a recreational angler hooking and landing a wild fish, maybe grabbing a quick photo and releasing that fish. And we're talking a 10% mortality rate. Well, the reality is it's less than three. And uh, I can tell you that the 10% mortality rate, um, I've been told from a number of sources that that is a that is an agreed to mortality rate based on the fact that the co-managers don't want it any less than that. And if you think about what that does for fisheries and management and running models and things like that, of course they want a high mortality rate. They have a high mortality rate, but they'll also tell you that every dead fish they have is accounted for. Whereas we have an uncertainty Right. when we release fish, we can't be assured that that fish lived or died. Yeah. I know for my, I know from my personal experience, my brother is a, a managed hatchery manager down in Eastern Oregon and they have, that's right. They have steelhead that goes to their hatchery. And what they do is they'll take excess fish, take a hole punch, put a hole in the fin put it on the truck, run it back up, put it in a river, and let the anglers have another chance. And there, yeah. are, and there are many of them that have three hole punches in them. Yeah, recycled. Yeah. So those fish go down, put in a truck, drove up a road, dump back in the river, swim back, swim back up to the hatchery, get put on a truck, go back down, put in a river. Yep, yep. So, so I know just from doing that and he's, there's quite a few steelhead fishermen down there on the, on that river. And they, uh, those folks are catching fish and sometimes they have several hole punches in them. So, yeah, I think it's probably over, over estimated that mortality rate, but the bottom line is we choose some impact and then that's how we kind of manage. And I guess the whole issue with this is is not agreeing on with all the managers in place what those should be and and uh what that impact really you know is acceptable well i guess it's uh on a from a conservation perspective it's better to overshoot it than undershoot it sure sure from from a recreational perspective it's frustrating that it might be well overshot it's a fine line there you know i think if we could reel that down to I believe in region four here on the west side, region four, they actually manage the fisheries at a four or five percent. It might be a five percent mortality rate. Mm-hmm. So everything else is 10 percent. Now, look, region managers, fishery managers do have the ability to have input or say on that as their region. That's sure. Know, what, what are the field bios bringing to them? And they got to make those decisions. So here in Grays Harbor, for long-standing, we've been subjected to that 10% mortality rate. Although I will uh, reemphasize again that those proposals and those management plans that they took to the co-managers this year to try and get us a fishery leaned more towards less than 3%, which was encouraging. You know, just the whole thing, that whole process, if you think about it, how tasking that would have been. Uh, creel samplers at the takeouts and daily data being collected and i was on board with it 100 percent because what you know what's the end game you continue to sit across the table from co-managers that are telling you to go collect the data support your 
your your hypothesis, support your models, show us where your impacts are, prove to us that you can target hatchery fish and have little no impact on wild fish. So they gear up for that. And there's like a bit of an excitement, a buzz, if you will, of opportunity to get back on those waters that we have not been able to. And you think, well, this plan is so well-defined and there's been so much thought put into it. How could they possibly say no? Right. And then ultimately when they continue to say no, you know, when it was all said and done a few weeks later, I'm thinking about it, thinking about it. I'm like, maybe it was so refined and the data would be so solid that it's not what they want to see. (laughs) It would prove that there is opportunity to go after hatchery fish and manage wild fish. And we can continue to run hatchery programs and, and that our impact, the series impact to these wild fish are not the recreational angler. There's the other side of that, that you got to think about. It's like, what right. are they, what are we afraid of here? Right? right. Good science might not be favorable for right. one side of the table or the other. And I think in this case, it would have been favorable for our side. So yeah. that's just my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We can, you know, we can sit here and chat like we are and speculate. And then the, the reality is, is that we weren't in those meetings and we don't know what some of the discussions Correct. were and that's fine. But I, I think you bring up some really good points and uh, I have no doubt that there's probably some truth in all of it. So, um, well, yeah. I've, I've been chatting with you for quite a bit and that was really thorough, Dwayne. I, I appreciate it. And I hope it gives folks who, who have a real interest in this, some, you know, something to chew on. Uh, my last question for you would be, so if folks, want to get involved because, you know, people do want to get involved and they want to make their voice heard. What's the best way for people to do that on this issue? It's kind of a tough sell. I, I like to tell people to try and stay informed, download and keep on your desktop, the DFW or the ODFW website. So you got a quick link icon on your, on your desktop and periodically a couple of times a week, click on that thing and look at what their news releases are. Mm-hmm. Stay informed as to what's going on. And they've gotten better at managing their websites and updating with emergency regs, closures, openings, uh, news bullets, things that are up and coming, and posting meetings and things that, hey, that's my fishery. I kind of want to know what's going on. And if nothing else, simply getting online and listening on those meetings, whether it's a commission meeting, you want to get really mad, you click in, do a Washington State Fish and Wildlife Commission meeting. Or now even an Oregon Fish and Wildlife Commission meeting um, and truly see what's going on. If you're a hunter, this is a whole nother podcast that you and I would probably need to unpack. But on the hunting side of things, getting pretty ugly from the commission's perspective. And so really um, to hear it from other persons and to read posts on social media platforms that are nothing but just lambasting and, and people going off on tirades because they're so pissed off. Right. That's one way to get information, but I don't know if you're always getting the accurate information. So I would recommend to click onto those links from time to time, check the news tabs, see what they're releasing as far as information. If it's something you're passionate about and there's a meeting coming up again, if you want to get involved on the periphery, simply listen in as to what's going on. And then if you feel compelled because you're so pissed off, raise your hand on those zoom meetings and start voicing your voicing your opinion. Because you can't get anything accomplished if you sit idle. That's right. You have to be heard, right? And it's it's an old, you know, assumption that ah, they don't even listen to us. Well, I think in some regards, as far as some of the work I've seen done and the engagement with the public, 
uh, on some of these fisheries. There is movement, but it takes it takes time. It, it does it takes time. It does take time, and I, I want to sort of echo something you said because I think it's important. Don't get your information from social media unless you're getting it directly from an official website where the departments are mm-hmm. releasing that information. And, and quite frankly, I think it does us absolutely no good to argue back and forth on social media. The rubber meets the road in those meetings and when they do a rule setting, and that's where you really want to get involved. And, the, and Dwayne is right. If you want to get involved, then you need to be informed because you need to understand all sides of the issue. It's not just, by God, give me my fishery and my hunting spot because it's not that simple. So you really do need to know both sides. So you can speak intelligently and your input matters. So, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, Dwayne, I appreciate your time. You're, uh, as usual, very thoughtful on this stuff. So thanks. Well, I don't have a life, Richie, so I sit around and read way too much stuff and keeps me awake at night. Yeah, there so, you go. You know. <laughs> hey, hey, be sure to tune in and watch Fish Hunt Northwest every week. He, uh, you can find him on Facebook every Thursday night for a live stream. And then, like he said, uh, you can also find them on Root Sports. And tell them again what time your show airs on Root Sports. Yeah, so Thursday evening, 6 p.m. for the live stream, and then Sunday, 9 a.m. on Root Sports. We have a full one-hour program for you to view on Root Sports. There you go, folks. Be sure to tune in. Thanks, Dwayne. Yeah, thanks, Richie. Appreciate it. Fantastic conversation with D Wayne. He, uh, like we mentioned, you know, he stays on top of all these issues and tries to hold people accountable and talks about it every week on his show, live streaming on Facebook and YouTube on Thursdays and then airs on uh, Root Sports uh, over the weekend. So cool conversation, a lot of good insight there. Yeah, it was fun visiting with him. I always like talking with Dwayne. And like you said, he keeps up on it. So he knows the ins and outs. He can talk. Yes, he can. Yes, he can. <laughs> talk show host. Yeah, he can exactly. talk. You know, it. it <laughs> we we get we get to going and uh, you know talking about stuff like that and and <laughs> I just it, it's great to have an individual that is knowledgeable enough with with everything that's going on. Yeah. And you want to see something happen, but there's there's so many moving parts on trying to help or create what we want, what we're looking for, more encounters, more fishing, being able to to do right. all these things. We look back on, on what we grew up with. When I moved down there in 82, I mean, it was not uncommon to go in the morning down in front of my grandparents' place and catch two to 10 steelhead in the morning and right. be to work by eight o'clock. Right. No big deal. It was like, I mean, today you have to figure out where you can go, what you can use, right. and tomorrow might change. Yeah. So it's so different today. Oh, it is. Where we're at and and what we have to deal with. The number one thing is is don't bitch about it. Become involved. Become be in, about it. Yeah, be do, about it. Yeah. That's yeah. right. Do yeah. something. Don't don't just sit and bitch. And because it's it's not you're not going to get anything done. It's all to do is drive your blood pressure up. Right. I and think Facebook comments really don't do much. You know, I've worked in social media no. forever and it, the people making decisions aren't, aren't behind that screen. It's uh yeah, it's, you know, you, you have to get involved and take your voice offline and 
It's the only way a collective group is going to get anything done is if you come at them in numbers. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, we talked about the whole yeah social that's... media thing as well. Dwayne and I did, but I'll just tell you maybe kind of a last thing on this topic is I worked in government. I can just tell you the wheels of government turn very slow. So the yeah. reason to be involved is so that your voice is heard, but you have to keep being involved because mm-hmm. because it just takes a long time. And eventually change will happen, but the worst thing can happen is you give up because as soon as you give up, then there's that pressure isn't on anymore and the wheels of government are still turning. And to make change, that's what you got to do. Yep. You just got to be in front, center all the time as best you can be. You got to be yep, part being of persistent. Yeah. yeah. Be part of the solution. What do you got for news um, and notes there, buddy? Well, I don't really have any like specific news. Just, uh, you know, living down here, there's also staying in, in tune with a lot of the fishing down here. On a good news, it does sound like Steelhead has been um, decent, going decent on the Lewis River. Have you talked to JB or anything? Yeah, he he, had, he hasn't been fishing. He's been either clam digging or he actually had a, a cow tag down in Ty Valley. Oh. And so he didn't fill it uh, over Christmas break, so he's going to go down again this week. So he hasn't been fishing at all. Got it, yeah. Speaking of clams, the state uh, recently opened up seven days of clam digs uh, down in this area. Looks like from January 9th to the 15th. By the time you're hearing that, it... Uh, those had likely uh, been finished, but uh, they do have additional tentative dates in January and February all the way through the, the 25th. And I haven't done a lot of, I've literally done no razor clam digging, but you guys uh, in talking about this seem to be pretty excited about the whole process of doing that. Oh, it's a lot of fun. I, yeah. I haven't done it for a while myself, but I mean, as anybody knows who, who likes that kind of stuff, razor clams are the best clams you'll ever eat. They're so good. They're so tender. They're just, it's, but it's a lot of fun. You go down and when there's a good low tide and we used to lo- use those clam guns, which is basically a big PVC pipe. And you look for a little shoot of water and you put the tube down and pull them up. Oh, it's fun. Lots of fun. Yeah. Razor clams, I enjoy, you know me, I, I'm kind of finicky when it comes to food. And I'm going to tell you what, I almost would rather eat a, a good fried razor clam than a Dungeness crab. Oh, yeah. I mean, they're, they're so, they're so sweet that, uh, and, and digging them is an absolute riot. I mean, it, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. So the key with them is not to overcook them. Yep. Yep. Uh, it doesn't take much to cook them. And they're just, they're tender and sweet. I mean, oh, God, yeah. I could just eat them till you're sick. Yeah, I gotta tell a quick. Yeah, it looks like daily daily limits fifteen of them. So yeah, oh, that's nice. Belly full. I gotta tell a quick story. I went to Alaska many years ago now, and and went on a bear hunt with a couple buddies of mine. I went to college with, and basically we spent our entire four days of this trip on a boat in the Prince William Sound. And my buddy lives in Alaska that we went with. Oh, he and his buddy. So there's four of us. And he said, when we go out, we're going to pull some pots and we're going to get some some shrimp. And I'm like, oh, that's awesome. So we went out as we left left the dock. We went out there. We pulled their pots. And us and another boat met him there, a friend of his, another friend of his met him there. And we got five gallons, almost a five-gallon bucket full of all these spot prawns. Spot prawns. Yeah. And then we're going 
on out into the fjords of the islands and he go, and it was getting late in the day he says we're going to have a feast i go yeah where he goes yeah it's not just these he goes i brought a bunch of razor clams oh man and so we were out there the first two days all we ate were razor clams and spot prawns until you were sick oh my god it was so good you needed a lot of toilet paper <laughs> oh man <laughs> <laughs> we were like a goose. Yeah, I know. I know. I, yeah. But it was so good. Oh, I bet. It was worth every bit of it. <laughs> anyway, uh, that's my story. What else? Uh, the other thing people, you know, chatter of down here is that, uh, and I didn't even know about it, and it's not something I've done again, but uh, people get pretty excited about smelt dipping down here when, oh, yeah. you know, there's uh, <laughs> quick little little openings, and um, yeah, is that something you guys have done, Bobby? Obviously, being down here, uh, majority of your life, I'm assuming you've done uh, quite a bit of dipping. Yes, yeah. Yeah, we used to we used to do a lot of smelt dipping. Uh, we used them for uh, sturgeon bait predominantly. Yeah, that's what and, we did too. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, and I've told you guys a story about my grandfather back in his day dipping smelt. You you get uh, thirty gallons of smelt and then you brine them and then put them in the smoker and they eat them you know whole and uh, oh. <laughs> but uh-huh. you know what they and they used to fry them. Yeah. Do you know how greasy? Greasy. Oh my God! That's and why smelly. they're smelly. So, yeah, and they're so smelly. Yeah, that's like trying to to fry up a kippered snack. I mean, oh yeah. you won't get the smell out for <laughs> a <No>, week. <laughs> they take they take those things whole. Yeah, roll them in flour, throw them in lard uh, in the in the fry pan, fry them up. Oh my God! No, no thanks. <laughs> you know what? It, it's a lot of fun uh, dipping. Smell. It's really fun to dip them, and they're great sturgeon bait. That's what I think. Yeah. <laughs> You know what's also really fun is uh, having people to talk to in a trade show booth. And by the time you're listening to this, we are likely standing in a booth in Puyallup waiting for you guys to come talk to us about fishing and hunting. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> or, maybe, sure. or maybe Portland. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> both Puyallup and Portland will have, will have a booth there. We'll have pro staff in the booth. We'll be there to uh, answer any questions, uh, show you product. BS about fishing since we don't get to do it during the winter too much, but yeah. uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, go to the Max Lure booth and then come on over and visit the Herod Outdoors booth. Absolutely, Richie's Richie's gonna have all sorts of good stuff. Over I got there. all kinds of things. Come see our new rod. Yeah, new fishing rod. He's got all sorts of stuff yeah, in there. New seasoning. I'll tell you what. New seasoning. Did you know that? What new seasoning? Oh, you have a new seasoning. New seasoning. What is it? What do you got? You got the Parmesan back? No. <laughs> I know everybody keeps asking me that. No. Smoking garlic. Smoking garlic. Smoking garlic. Hmm. Okay. Oh, yeah, baby. All right. I, hey, and that's hey, for Britain. sale. That'll be for sale. Yeah. It Britain. will be. Have you have you seen any smoking garlic? I haven't seen any. Oh, neither. I haven't seen any either. This is uh, undercover. And... I haven't even heard about it. Yeah, exactly. This I is, mean, it, under, we, we got a... left out of the loop here. <laughs> it's all undercover, highly secret. I'm just now declassifying it. <laughs> I think I've been able to officially replicate your uh, fit and field season. Oh, now come on. Don't be doing that I, crap. I've been, I, well, just for fun, I've, I've gotten heavily into basically making my own seasonings for stuff. And so I've been trying to like replicate it. You know, God, you know, it gets pricey buying. You know, you you take advantage of us. <laughs> I do not. 
I can't believe you bastard. I got that big I got a big package of all your seasonings, you know, a couple months ago when I was in town. Right. And I straight up just left them. And so oh. I had a little <laughs> bit left over of one of them and I use it, you know, as a taco seasoning. Oh yeah. And so yeah. I've been playing with uh I've been play. I, I've since recovered my seasonings and now have everything, so I don't need to be making my own. But while I didn't have any, I was doing some experiments, and I'm pretty close. Pretty close. <laughs> no, you can't. You can't make it exact, though. Come on now. Now, would that be the creamy jalapeno sauce? <laughs> Jesus, that is the creamy jalapeno sauce. <laughs> exactly, oh, folks. You folks. know what? That was really good on those breakfast burritos this morning. It's the Finn and Field. Seasoning or fin and field sauce, not the creamy jalapeno. <laughs> Bobby, you know, you know, these two guys, it's all about marketing with them. That's what they yeah. do. And they, you know, when it comes to like making sure people know about my stuff, they yeah. don't use the right name. Oh, yes, we do. Buzzwords, though. But, Buzzwords yeah. work. Creamy jalapeno sauce. If yeah. That converts to Everybody, sales, everybody's like, what is a creamy jalapeno sauce? I don't see it. Where is it? Yeah. <laughs> Well, you got to create it. But That's right. You got to make it. Once the field has been been created, it's now creamy jalapeno sauce. <laughs> oh, <Jesus. laughs> oh man, see what I have to put up with. You know, during our last break, our last break, I did end up, uh, you know, officially living up to the cup here. Ah, I do have. Uh, I, a knew it, I, knew I knew it. I knew it. Non-adulting. <laughs> I uh, went with cookie dough again. Oh, I still got my Wood Family Spirits. Uh, Columbia bourbon. What are you drinking, Bobby? Same Wood, wood Family Spirits, baby. Yeah. We're yeah. all set up now. Are uh, you out? I'm out of bourbon. No, that's too bad. We're not. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm also out of the vodka because I gave Bobby my last bottle. Oh, we're not out of that either. <laughs> <laughs> and and okay. we and we ate his burrito. And we ate his burrito. <laughs> You guys literally brought a burrito for me and then ate it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's so kind of you. Guys. <laughs> you're thinking about me. Well, we we set it there in your in your spot, and nothing happened on the counter. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it didn't eat itself. No, no. It, it didn't eat itself. So we thought, well, shit, we might as well eat it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a there's a high likelihood that there's burritos and special coffee at the booth too. So you guys do have to come down when you guys come down and talk to us. It makes those days go by much quicker because. I'll be honest, as much as we love being there, it, it's much more fun when you're there speaking to people yeah. and talking. And yeah. uh, I don't even need to show you a lure. But if you come down and talk fishing, we're, we're happy to do yeah. so. So that's uh, down in uh, Puyallup and Portland, two weeks apart. Uh, this is it, probably airing in between them. But you can find all the information at the sportshows.com for those shows and all sorts of good stuff, fun stuff happening down there, bringing the whole family. It's a good time. Indeed. Yes, it is. But it's probably time to go pack up the trailer. Yeah. <laughs> and get ready to go do those. It really is, actually. <laughs> yep. So uh, we are going to take off, but appreciate everyone listening. Be sure to rate the show, share it if you can, and be sure to go like us on Facebook and Instagram at Max Lure at Herod Outdoors. Until next time, we will talk to you later. 